Okay, so welcome back to lecture, lecture 15 today. Last time we talked about bioluminescence, and we talked about luminescence in general, which is just glowing, things that glow, uh, and the different kinds of luminescence that we have. So we have bioluminescence, we have fluorescence, and we also talked about incandescent light, which is a different thing altogether. But today we'll just do a brief review of what we covered last time. And you'll probably recall last time we had the virtual tour of the Seattle Art Museum, the Dale Chihuly Glass Museum. And Dale Chihuly is an artist who does these incredible works of glass with really vibrant colors in them. So we'll just do a quick recap about glass, what glass is, and how you get those amazing colors in the glass themselves. Uh, We'll also recap bioluminescence and then go into a little more detail today about things like bioluminescence of the future. Last time I talked about the potential for given that our sort of technologies and our knowledge is expand, expanding so much as a species, um, this sort of century has allowed us to really look look into the gene, look into genetic engineering, and of course um, some of the experimentation for that is mixing up a number of genes that cause bioluminescence in marine animals or a number of the different animals that we talked about last time and uh, sort of mixing and matching and creating glowing animals or glowing creatures. So you'll see some of that. Not only glowing creatures but People are actually looking to create glowing trees, plants that autonomously give off their own light. So these are bioluminescent plants. They actually produce light from chemical reactions. Uh, this is different than fluorescence. Fluorescence is not production of light, it's re-emittance of light. So we'll look at applications and some of these startup companies that have even started as sort of crowd-funded Kickstarter campaigns and shortly, I think you can even order them shortly, you'll be able to order your own special plant which you inject with luciferase and you can make your plant glow. So this will be something in the future to talk about. Uh, after that we'll take a look at some natural colors, non-luminescent colors in animals, but specifically colors in plumage, in feathers, in creatures like birds. And then you may see this, you say dinosaurs, feathers and dinosaurs. Actually birds were the precursors of sort of modern dinosaurs and recent discoveries have found sort of trace genetic materials of dinosaur feather types with different pigment types. So we can actually imagine now what dinosaurs may have looked like with certain feathers because it is likely that a number of them did have feathers. So we'll talk about this a little bit and then we'll conclude today with the just natural color variations and color usage in animals. So a couple announcements. I think probably all of you have been to the Moodle site already. Your midterm marks are posted on Moodle. Uh, please check your midterm marks. Uh, I have not yet 
reviewed the midterm in class. And my reason for doing that is there are a number of students who still haven't written the midterm due to illness or various reasons. And they will be most likely writing the uh, makeup midterm next week. So after everyone has written, I will recap the midterm questions and do a review in class. So we'll take up some of the midterm answers so you can see if and where you went wrong in certain places. The makeup midterm, if anybody in here hasn't yet taken the midterm, I know a lot of you are asking when that will be. Uh, that's the sort of the verdict is out on that one for a little bit, uh, given that this will be a makeup handled by the Nats department. So I have to wait until Monday to give you more details about that. But potentially the makeup midterm will occur on March 15th in Curtis Lecture Hall B pending developments with the strike. But I will keep you updated on that. Um, another thing about emails, just a quick word about emails. Uh, some of you have mentioned that you sent me emails and I haven't responded. Um, I've tried to respond right away to all of the emails that I get, but I've noticed the last week or so, some of them I just, I don't seem to have been getting them. And I've heard other people having problems with the York system. So if you haven't heard from me and you've sent me an email and it's been like two days, please resend me the email and I will try and get back to you like as soon as possible. Because likelihood, in all likelihood, if it's been two days, I haven't received your email yet. Okay. Um, and then, as I've said, midterm questions will be reviewed in class. I received your Scantron sheets back. So if you want to, after the review in class, meet with me and take a look at your midterm and exactly where you went wrong, we can do this as well. I'll um, post some office hours and you can also email me to arrange an appointment. So we're in a, a kind of unfortunate position now with the strike, and I do appreciate everybody coming out this morning. Um, I just wanted to, you may not be aware of Senate policy, but I just wanted to give you an idea of your rights as students here during a York strike. So if you follow this link later on, when at home or where, wherever, even now, uh, you will come to the Senate policy, which gives you a clear outline of what you must and must not do during a strike. Um, it is entirely your choice to cross picket lines or to not cross them. And as I said last time, you will not be penalized for any material that you miss during the strike. Um, there will be reasonable extensions and reasonable accommodations made if you are missing material during the strike time. Um, and here's just the section. I don't think anybody wants to leaf through Senate policy in detail, but uh, if you're curious to know how this is all going to shake out, take a look at the Senate policy section 2.2. Um, in this course and in your other courses, you will be able to be accommodated for missing material due to the strike. One thing I want to say with respect to uh, the assignment. So the assignment two is due on March 16th. I've extended that date. 
However, because we're in a strike situation, you are not obligated to hand in that assignment because no, none of your TAs will be here to mark it. And I am not allowed to mark it personally. Um, so if you, know, if you can't hand that in, that's all right. Um, but I, I do recommend that if you want to keep things up, and hopefully if this ends quickly, uh, then we can move on. So I would suggest strongly to submit on March 16th. So assignment two, some of you already submitted, I know, because you're worried about the drop date. Now, in the case of this strike situation, uh, with the drop date, so the last day to drop winter courses without receiving a grade is March 9. It or was in the calendar is March 9. Given recent developments, it's most likely that that date will be extended out to be a floating deadline date until after the strike is resolved. I can't guarantee that, but that's what's happened in the past. So I just wanted to let you know that. Um, if you've already submitted your essay, I will go over those individually. Please check on Moodle for your mark if you're needing that to know whether to drop or keep the course. Um, the marks that you've submitted to me already should be posted by March 9. And there's your sort of the date table. This is the March 9 date. I suspect highly that this will be changed. No guarantees, but that is that's what it has happened in the past. Okay. So that's all the announcements out of the way. Let's get on to a review of what we talked about last class. And we started with, started and finished with glass. As you can see, this is a beautiful uh, sort of glass cube, which is made of dichroic glass, which reflects colors. And he has, this is an artist, um, and I believe his name is Jack Storm. You can go to his site. You can see how he creates these pieces. But glass is a really amazing material to work with, with art, with color, because of the reflection and the refraction um, abilities and properties of this medium. What is it, though? So let's see if you remember from last time, what is glass? So which of the following is not true? of glass. Okay, which one is not true? So is it, it is an amorphous solid, it is created from fire and sand, it has a crystalline structure, it is often a mixture of melted sand, soda ash, and limestone, or it can be easily recycled. So it's looking a little bit more even across the board here this time. Okay, a couple more seconds to get your answers in. 
majority rules as usual, the answer is indeed C. Glass does actually not have a crystalline structure. It's what we call an amorphous solid. An amorphous solid is not quite a solid, but it's not quite a liquid. Solids are characterized by a sort of crystalline lattice structure. If you remember, early on in the course we talked about temperature, and temperature being the kinetic energy between the molecules or the atoms in a substance. And typically in solids, things that are hotter have higher energy, they're bouncing around more quickly. And in solids, um, the density between the particles is less, right? They're packed more closely together. So in a solid, this is what we have. But in glass, we do have molecules being tight, packed tightly together. However, they're not in that formalized crystalline structure. And that's because glass is this amorphous solid. And it's essentially what you get by mixing two elements, for better lack of term, by mixing sand and fire. You heat sand to its melting point which typically is about 1,700 degrees Celsius. You mix it in a furnace, and you obtain, when you mix it with soda ash and calcium carbonate or limestone, you obtain the glass we use today. And for that reason, our modern glass that we use today is called soda lime silica glass. Uh, we did go over this last time, but just to, to recap, the reason why we want to even bother adding something like soda ash or calcium carbonate, soda ash lowers the melting point of the sand, makes it easier to melt, makes less heat, intense heat required to produce it. And the calcium carbonate solidifies it because if you lower the melting point too much and you produce a glass, it dissolves in water, which is pretty useless to us. And typically, glass is really easily recycled at any glass blowing plant. As you saw in the videos last time, you just have heaps of recycled glass, broken glass being thrown into the furnace, remelted and recombined with soda ash, limestone, and, uh, and more sand. Okay, let's see if, the, if this one comes back. So a something is a cross-sectional piece of a blank. This is to do with glass again. So is it a cane is a cross-sectional piece of a murina. A murina is a cross-sectional piece of a cane. A rod is a cross-sectional piece of a cane. Uh, is it murina rod or granule and murina? Okay, uh, about five more seconds. 
For this one, what we actually have is a murina is a cross-sectional piece of a cane. So I'll stop that. <laughs> and, and then, of course, the answer goes up to that one. <laughs> so, yes. A, a murina is a cross-sectional piece of a cane. And these terms are a little, I mean, they're, they're not necessarily too meaningful to us, but to try and remember it, think of a cane like a rod, a cane, think of a candy cane. So, ca yes. Yeah, one is rod and one is cane. So we call typically a cane, it is like a rod, but that's the formal name for it. The glass canes, which you use to inject color into something, it's called a cane, but it's shaped like a rod. But that's the technical term, technical term for it. So with, with canes, a cane is just like a cylinder. Um, and the reason we're even talking about canes, unless you want to be a glass maker, is that the canes give the glass color. They're used to inject color into the glass during the glass blowing process. So a cane is a cylinder like this. And often it has very intricate patterns of colored glass twirled around it, sometimes in spirals or sometimes in very distinctly patterned ways such that when you cut a slice off this cane and produce a cross-section of the cane, so one sort of circular piece that would be something like this, or not great perspective there, this is called a murina. And often you'll see a lot of murinae is the plural for a singular murina. And you'll see these pieces of glass that are cut up canes, and they often have some beautiful patterns like flowers or swirls in them. And this is what, this is actually called, it's an example of Mille Fiori uh, glass, which means a thousand flowers. And that's an example of this murine, these, these, class, these sections that are cut up and then thrown into the furnace. Well, not thrown into the furnace. The glass is rolled in them, and then you have these beautiful kinds of vases and results that you get from recombining and remelting the glass with these things. But here's a better example. So at the top is a picture of all the canes, and you can see they have these twisting spirals of color around them. At the bottom, here's an example of the murine the glass beads that are the canes cut into small cross-sections. Oh, it really doesn't want to cooperate. So in terms of getting those beautiful colors that you saw in our previous class in the sculpture, typically what will happen is the glass blower will take the glass, which is already sort of on this rod, and the blowing rod, roll it in cane pieces or recombine it with cane to give you the color. So what gives the color to the cane? What produces these things? And the answer to that is it's metal. It's metal oxides, sulfur oxides. Combining glass, that's combining the sand and melting it down with powdered metals gives you different colors of glass. So that is how color is produced in glass 
artwork. Okay. Those are just the definitions of the canes and the murini that we talked about before. And this word may look familiar to you. Um, murine, there's Murano glass. And Murano was a small sort of island um, of Venice when Venice was an independent city-state in the 1400s or so. And basically, some very fine glassware came from Venice. That's why you've probably heard of Venetian glass or Murano glass. And Murano glass is typically the glass blowing process rolled in sheets of murine to create this bouquet of colors sort of on the, on the glass. Uh, in terms of which metal makes which color, I did show this slide, this particular chart last time. You will not be expected to recite exactly which metal compound makes which color of glass. But just to give you an idea of all of the possible shades and the different ways that we've gone about experimenting with color making in glass, here are some examples. And there's a picture of, uh, of Dale Chihuly, who is the artist we talked about last time, standing in front of one of his sort of massive sculptures, uh, of which there's one in Seattle. It's not just sort of oxides, red and orange. And the one in Seattle is all yellow. And it's, uh, it's a representation of the sun. Okay, so something else we talked about last time. Float glass. Float glass is made by what? So is it made by depositing molten glass on molten metal? Cooling molten glass in water, combining sulfite grounds with calcium carbonate, coating liquefied glass with aluminum, or pressing resin under very high heat. That one is maybe may have been easier to remember. Okay, I'm going to stop this. And the answer is A, depositing molten glass on molten metal. If you sort of recall what float glass is from last time, float glass is a name we give to these sort of planar glass sheets. This is the kind of glass we use in windows. And float glass, the way that you get it is recall that when you have your sand mixture and it's heated, it becomes a liquid. So glass, when you blow glass, it's like a liquid kind of a substance, which is why adding air into the mixture expands it. So with our float glass, you deposit glass liquid on molten metal, so such that it floats atop the molten metal, and this is how you get your flat glass sheets. These are important for us because these are how, among other things, like I said before, how we make windows, and also how we make mirrors. So typically, 
our common modern-day mirror, which has been arrived at after many processes of refinement, is just float glass, which has an underside of it allowed to be exposed to aluminum powder. The powder evaporates on it and creates a reflective coating. So this is process is called sputtering. Aluminum is sputtered onto the glass in a vacuum chamber, creating this beautiful, clear, reflective coating that we have and now see as our mirror. A quick review of uh, luminescent color and colored surfaces. I'm not going to go back over this in a ton of detail. Just to remind you that the color of anything, as we keep stressing in the course, the color of anything really has to do with how that thing is composed. It has to do with how the molecule is put together and then how that molecule both absorbs ref and reflects light. And that gives us the color that we see in our eye combined with perception. So the molecule's structure is really important to understand the colors of objects. Based on the molecule's structure and the electric bonds that are happening within the molecule, different colors of light will be produced. So once you know this, you can predict color changes and you can predict scene colors as well. The way that you predict this is through the spacing of the energy levels. As we've discussed, spacing of energy levels between the photons. So in an atom, we have the nucleus. We have electrons that orbit the nucleus. And the electrons jump between different energy levels. When they jump down, a photon is produced and emitted, leaves the system. And that photon has a specific color of light. So this is how we know the colors. So in something like luminescent color, where we're talking about glowing objects, the electron drops from a very specific level. It drops from a very, very high level to a much lower level. Think for a minute about luminescent objects, like those bioluminescent marine creatures that we saw last time. Most of them glow blue tend to tend to have this blue glow. And that has to do with how, again, the molecule produces the light. It has to do with an electron jumping from a very high, very excited state to a very low one. And you get this blue photon. Similarly with fluorescence, a lot of the colors, those glow-in-the-dark stickers or glow-in-the-dark, uh, anything that glows in the dark under UV light, typically emits in the yellow or the green. And again, this is due to these energy transitions that are happening. It's the photon that is emitted at a certain energy when it's jumping down those transitions. Two more important things to remember about, yes. Right, that's a good question. So the question is, why is this, has the sun been continuously luminescent? And that leads into what we're going to talk about a little bit today, which is luminescence versus incandescence. Those are different processes. So incandescence is when heat is being generated within a substance. Basically, the sun is a, is a fusion reactor. Um, it's hydrogen and helium is burning. Stars are sort of 
giant fireballs that are fusion reactors where we have the combination of a lot of elements to produce different elements, but that also gives off the byproduct of light. So they themselves are heat engines, and these are incandescent light sources, like a light bulb. So a light bulb heats up, electricity travels through the tungsten filament, and this glowing and the melting of the metal produces the glow. So there's actually a, a reaction going on there by which heat is converted to light. In the luminescent color sources, the glowing marine organisms, that is not the same kind of reaction. Heat is not being converted to light in that instance. So it's, it's a different chemical process, and it's often a cool chemical process. So, I mean, a jellyfish, for example, that's going to be bioluminescent or um, a squid, like we talked about last time, they don't get insanely hot. Their body's temperatures aren't insanely hot because they're producing heat and light. These are cool reactions. So that's, that is the main difference. But with the luminescent color stuff, we just want to remember this is an electron jumping from higher to lower levels. And with the colored surfaces, remember our unit on surfaces, this is selective absorption and reflection. Some of the light on this surface is getting absorbed, and some of the light is getting reflected to your eye selectively. So something that is red selectively reflects red wavelengths to your eyes. It absorbs all the other light, reflects the red. So that's the difference with the luminescent color and the colored. Colored surfaces are reflecting the light of a certain color. Luminescent surfaces are producing the light of a certain color. Okay. So going back to luminescent sources, we talked about a couple different forms of luminescence. We talked about bioluminescence and fluorescence. But this is an important point, so let's see um, what your answer to this is. The difference between luminescence and fluorescence is that luminescence something light, whereas fluorescence something light. So which one does which? Does luminescence create light and fluorescence destroy it? Producing, re-emitting, re-emitting, producing, destroying, creating, or reflecting and refracting. For the last option, just remember that reflecting is when the light basically is bounced straight back into your eye. So if you have a surface, incoming light, is bounced back into your eye. Refraction is the bending of the light. So incoming light would be kind of scattered in different directions. Okay. So the difference between luminescence and fluorescence is that Luminescence, this is correct, produces the light, 
and the fluorescence re-emits light. So there's a difference, again, when you think of fluorescence, I always think of glow-in-the-dark. Glow-in-the-dark inks, glow-in-the-dark stickers, etc. So fluorescence is something that needs an external light source, specifically light. What happens is it absorbs the light in the UV range and re-emits that light once the light is shut off to our eyes as visible light. So that's re-emitting light, converting UV to visible, whereas luminescence is actually producing light from a chemical reaction. Does not need to be charged by an external light source. This is, in fact, why a number of marine organisms at very, very um, deep uh, regions of the oceans and the seas uh, do not, they are bioluminescent as opposed to biofluorescent. There is no real incident light kilometers below an ocean where sunlight does not penetrate deeply and therefore the organisms living at these depths create their own light. Just quickly illustrate the difference again. Last time we had this slide, this shows you a cylinder full of water injected with fluorazine dye. Fluorazine dye is fluorescent in UV light, and you can see a big UV light here. It, uh, it's a black light. It uh, emits this, it absorbs this UV radiation and re-emits in the yellowy-green area. Whereas this is a bioluminescent jellyfish, it produces its own light and its emission of the light is in the blue range. Okay. So again, this is what's happening when you have fluorescence, when you have bioluminescence, when you have any photon being produced. How far it jumps down, how many orbitals, how many levels tells you what color is produced. So jumping from the furthest to the ground state will give you blue in some atoms, and jumping one level will give you red in some atoms. Okay. So I'm going over that a little bit quickly because we, we did go over it last time. But this goes back to the previous question is what's the, what's the difference? What's the difference between incandescent emission and luminescent emission? And the difference you can think of it as a concept we talked about probably in the very first lecture, uh, the conservation of energy. You have to recall as well that energy is not really created, it's not destroyed, it, it moves from one form to another. So if a certain kind of energy, for example, in an incandescent source, heat energy, uh, heat energy is being emitted and is being sort of reproduced uh, conservation-wise is being emitted as light. So in incandescent light sources, like your light bulb, like stars, like our sun, all of the colors are produced. White light, remember the sun's spectrum? You have white light that you see from the sun. When Newton did his experiment, he directed the sunlight through a narrow opening and basically dispersed it with a prism, splitting it into all of the colors. This was white light from an incandescent source, which is all colors of light being produced, plus 
or heat. Now, in our luminescent emission, light's being produced, but in a specific way, and not just all light, not the full spectrum of light, not just white light, light of one specific color and frequency. Yes, did you? Right. Okay, so it looks to us like that. The sun is a spectrum, basically. It, it is... It has the full, when I say white light, I don't mean it's absolutely pure white light. It produces the full spectrum of all wavelengths of light. But it has a peak or a dominant production level at the yellowy-green area. That's just the way that the distribution is, is sort of. And, and it changes, and that's because, again, of chemical composition. So different stars than our sun have peaks in a different color because of the chemical composition of those stars. And that goes back to spectroscopy, what we talked about earlier. We'll be seeing some of that uh, later on as well with astronomy. Okay, so is that clear, the incandescent? Remember, it's all colors plus heat. The luminescent is a very specific color, and heat, or a great quantity of heat, is not necessarily produced. And this is what you get, luminescent emission is what you get in things like neon signs, the aurora. The aurora actually have to do with particles, charged particles from Earth's magnetic field interacting with particles at certain levels of the atmosphere. And also nebulae, the beautiful sort of gas and dust clouds which give us these colors at a certain level. So last time we had this curious idea of biofluorescence and using how biofluorescence in nature works as a way to produce potentially, um, pun intended, green energy. Uh, and maybe at some point, and this is what the startup companies would like to happen, is to have trees um, basically be uh, injected with or genetically engineered such that they emit a nice sort of dull glow at night and this could potentially light a city or serve as your night light on your desk if you have a little plant there. So that's kind of interesting. Let's, let's see how they do this. And to understand that, let's look a little bit more about how biofluorescence in uh, luminescence in nature works. So pardon me, I see that I put more on how biofluorescence works. Just a note, biofluorescence and bioluminescence, both things do happen. Bioluminescence is organisms producing their own light. Biofluorescence is organisms that absorb the UV light and re-emit it as light, but in the visible spectrum. So now we're going to talk about the bioluminescence, which is the production of light and it's usually in living organisms in the blue wavelengths. So it's the process in which, by which a lot of these organisms in the ocean produce light where there otherwise would be none. And they do that for a variety of reasons. Uh, things like, this is not a marine organism, but things like fireflies, which we showed last time, do this to attract a mate. Uh, there are a number of survival and uh, other reasons. 
why an organism would want to produce light. So the sunlight in an ocean, typically water attenuates certain wavelengths. Long wavelengths, like reds, yellows, even greens, but especially reds and yellows, do not travel far through water. Water absorbs these wavelengths and allows other through, others through, like the blue and the violet, and especially the ultraviolet. So when you look at marine organisms, it's not surprising to see they have these blue glows. That's the color that's most likely to be seen or perceived underwater. Okay, this is what travels through the water. And typically, at almost at depths greater than 700 meters, almost all of the organisms have some component of ability to be bioluminescent, which is, constitutes like 90%, actually, of deep ocean creatures produce their own light, which is quite uh, astounding if you think about that. Again, this light produces in the blue-green range, as this is the range that travels at such deep uh, regions, basically through the water. Um, again, to note the difference, once again, between bioluminescence and biofluorescence, um, a lot of marine organisms are also biofluorescent. Uh, but what's happening there is sunlight penetrates to deep depths. You'll notice the visible light stops after a certain depth, but the UV light continues down. We can't see it with our eyes, but these organisms absorb this UV light and re-emit it, usually in the visible as green. Okay. So there's more information here. There's a nice um, sort of rundown in a web, web exhibit on bioluminescence and biofluorescence, showing you a lot of the colors that these organisms produced. What's in common with anything that biofluoresces and bioluminesces, be it marine or terrestrial, is these, are these two chemicals. You have something called luciferin and luciferase. Luciferin is the protein that's responsible actually emitting the photon and luciferase, luciferase is the catalyst that ignites this reaction that allows the photon to be emitted. So it is these two chemicals that gives us this biofluorescent reaction. So now with the addition of, and again we have the same kind of thing, we have redox reactions. We talked about that several lectures back, but what happens when you add oxygen and sometimes other components to these systems is you do get this chemical reaction where the photon is produced. Specifically in the case of bioluminescence, with the addition of oxygen to that protein luciferin, it produces then luciferase, um, which helps it to release a photon of light. Now once again to stress the difference, unlike incandescent sources, unlike our light bulb, which when it's on you can't unscrew it, it's too hot, or stars, which are thousands of degrees Kelvin, these are objects which produce light by a massive amount of heat. 
bioluminescence and biofluorescence do not require massive amounts of heat to occur. In fact, that's why they're called cool reactions or cold reactions. You have the production of light in the absence of a large amount of heat. And there's more about this here. Uh, if you do take a look at this, um, some of it is a little bit more, I believe this is the link where some of it is a little bit more advanced. So don't get bogged down by the chemical formula or anything in there, but just realize it's a reaction. We talked about redox reactions where some electrons are being lost and some are being gained. And this is essentially what's happening in this case. To visualize it just a little bit uh, better, sort of cartoon schematic diagram of how luciferin and luciferase work together in an organism to produce light. So here's your organism, or basically you have this area where you has, have luciferin and luciferase. The luciferase allows, basically allows the oxygen to combine with the luciferin. It's like a gatekeeper. It allows the oxygen in, thereby being a catalyst for the reaction. The oxygen comes in, reacts with the luciferin, and the luciferin emits a photon of light at a certain wavelength. Uh, don't worry about learning oxyluciferin and all the uh, sort of specifics of that reaction. As long as you know it's these two chemicals that are reacting to produce this glow, that's what's important. Let's take a look at these glowing plants that we've talked about. This is a video by um, uh, sort of an architect, physicist, all-around um, inventor who has one of these startup companies and is talking about producing these streetlight type things. My name is Dan Rosemary. I'm a designer slash artist slash architect from the Netherlands and we're here in Austin, Texas in um, South by Southwest. Well one of the reasons why I went to USA is because they have a quite uh, liberal agenda of merging the worlds of nature and technology. In the last year I really became fond of biomimicry, so what can we learn from nature and apply that to the built environment, to roads, to public spaces, to our urban landscape. When you have a jellyfish deep, deep underwater, it creates its own light, you know. It does not have a battery or a solar panel or an energy bill. It does that completely autonomous. What can we learn from that? This is one of the first explorations where we merge the luciferine, the element which, which produces light in a firefly or in a jellyfish, merging it with existing plants. So these are plants which actually, at night, they glow, you know, without any battery, without any solar panel. And this is one of the first editions that were just uh, shipped to my uh, hotel room. And I'm really, really excited to, uh, to have one of the first in my hand. This is a very small version, which is produced in New York by, the, by a university there. And right now we're teaming up with them to make a really large one, like a tree, which glows at night, instead of standard street light. Like, I mean, come on, that, that, that will be incredibly fascinating to have this uh, energy neutral, but at the same time, this very poetic landscape. Yeah. I think in the end, technology will completely disappear. I don't think we'll be looking at screens so much again anymore in the coming 10, 15 years. 
So what happens when technology jumps out of the computer screen and, and becomes a part of the things that we wear, the roads that we drive on? Um, that's, I think, where the real challenge lays. That's a little taste of, uh, of one of one of the inventors of there are many many people doing this now and the research keeps growing and getting ahead by leaps and bounds but you can take a look there's I've put in some additional reference sources for you to take a look at if you'd like there's also a full-length TEDx talk by um, the person that you saw in the video but before we we get back into talking about how they did this and how biofluorescence may be used in plants or even other organisms in the future. Let's finish off our understanding of how bioluminescent and biofluorescent genes work. So again, in recent years, this area of research has exploded, but it actually isn't as recent as you might think. The first glowing plant or glowing sort of plant was leaf was produced in I believe it was 1986 so this is this is something that they've been working on for quite some time and the difference now is we have a very good and solid understanding of the human genetic code and the ability to create and manipulate genomes so we're able to isolate the genes in other species that are responsible for the glow, extract the genes, and re-inject them into other organisms. And this has in fact been done with basically most of the organisms you can think of. There are glow-in-the-dark sheep, glow-in-the-dark pigs, glow-in-the-dark uh, rabbits, glow-in-the-dark rats, um, and that may be interesting as a science project, but why would we care to produce such creatures? Does anybody have any ideas? Aside from they're, they're pretty and they're cute. Balance of the environment? Um, well, in, in terms like plants for green, you mean like energy? Not quite. This, this is a little bit different. With the specific living organisms, people are interested in, in engineering them to, to glow or emit light for medical research. If you can watch something glow and see how a pathogen or something moves through its system, you have a much higher chance of be able, being able to trace that pathogen and being able to potentially treat it. Um, there's actually these, these really, they're strange looking but adorable little creatures. And you may have seen them because I think they were pretty popular on the internet. Uh, you may even have one. They're called axolotls. And they're like little sea monsters, tiny little sea monsters that look like salamanders. But they look like little dragons and they're purple and blue and pink. But these, aside from just being cute, these are pretty amazing animals in that they are able to regenerate. If you cut off the limb of an axolotl, it will regenerate the limb. It can even regenerate organs around the heart. 
it can regenerate, I believe it can even regenerate a head, which is completely mind-blowing, not to mention imagine the implications for medicine if we understand how these kinds of organs can be regenerated and how this may advance medical science and help us to cure things. So they do have glow-in-the-dark, these axolotls, which are injected with jellyfish proteins to make them glow. And they study this, this uh, process of regrowing of the limbs through this glow-in-the-dark dye. Quite, it's, aside from just being kind of a mad science experiment, it's very useful. It's not just cruelty to animals. Um, but typically the glow for any of these sort of engineered creations is used as an indicator. So before we talked about pH levels, and we said with a pH level, if you make a solution more acidic or more basic, and you test it with an indicator, such as a uh, litmus paper strip, you can see it turns a certain color, and that tells you the presence of an acid is there or a base is there. Same thing with glow-in-the-dark kind of type of indication. You'll be able to use the glow or the light emitted as an indicator of something. So for instance, let's say you were going to engineer a glow-in-the-dark fish, um, but you were going to use it as a tracer for chemical elements in the water. So there actually are these fish. They're called glowfish. They're just kind of engineered later on to be an attractive pet. However, they do have the ability to potentially trace a pollutant in the water. So if you have these fish and they start to illuminate the water and produce light, you know that there's actual chemical, specific chemical in the water, which may or may not be safe or desirable for a number of reasons. So this is, our glow is, is an indicator in these kinds of organisms. And one of the most common um, proteins that is inserted into other species is something called GFP, green fluorescent protein. And that's from jellyfish that you saw, not the ones that glow blue, that are luminescent and produce their own light. These GFP proteins are from a type of jellyfish that glows kind of greenish, and it is biofluorescent, so it absorbs UV light, re-emits that in the visible. And uh, actually a very common usage of GFP, there are a lot of GFP-injected cats, and those are used, <laughs> I know it's kind of strange, but those are often used in medical, um, medical research. Cats, monkeys, uh, fish, rats, everything. And so here's, here's a picture of the glowfish that I was telling you about earlier. Um, what happens is the GFP is extracted and injected into the glowfish as eggs. So the glowfish grow and incorporate this GFP into their genetic structure. And then when they actually reproduce, since they've incorporated this into their genetic structure, they reproduce fish with the same GFP, the glowing genes. So you, you, you have a self-sustaining population of glowing fish. And this is what they look like in UV light. Uh, there are a number, just to go back briefly before we start 
doing more examples, showing you some more examples of animals, uh, genetically engineered modified animals. If you are interested in the glowing plants um, for things like environment, green energy, you can take a look at a couple of these sites. These are some interesting YouTube videos where you see uh, some of the founders of the startup companies showing you how you actually inject, um, how you actually combine luciferin and luciferase in the plant itself to make it grow. So you can order one of the thi these things, you get them at home, you have a syringe, you inject the plant, wait 15 minutes, and it glows in UV light. Uh, this is an example of a GFP rabbit. This rabbit's name is Alba. And unlike its sort of later predecessors, Alba was not designed to be a tool of medical research. This particular rabbit was produced by request, by commission of an artist, by a lab, basically. So the artist's name was Eduardo Cac, and he commissioned a glowing rabbit as a sort of statement of bio-art to make human beings think about the implications of bioengineering. Um, unfortunately, the idea was that Alba was supposed to go on display in a gallery. That never happened because they got into some really nasty litigation between the artist and the lab creators uh, and uh, property and dispute ownership over the rabbit. But you can still read quite a lot about, uh, about that particular rabbit if you're interested. Um, since then, a lot of that particular rabbit was modified such that its fur and skin contained GFP. So its fur actually glowed in the dark. More modern versions inject the GFP at an earlier stage when the rabbit embryos are still in the womb of the mother and they're born when they're born sometimes it's kind of interesting to trace the genetics because a, um, a mother would have a litter of rabbits they injected all of the sort of area of the litter to have this GFP and when the litter was born only two of them glowed in the dark And again, these are, used, these are used typically for medicine and to, to look at diseases and cure diseases. Okay, so I think that's a good time now from the segment from luminescent to non-luminescent for us to take a break and resume with the natural, non, not so freaky glow-in-the-dark colors of animals. Okay, it's 9.36, so if you want to be back by 9.55. Okay, so we'll resume. Um, so during the break, I was getting a chance to, to talk to um, uh, some of you, and I know the midterm results are disappointing. Um, I, was, I was surprised, actually, at, at, the, um, at the average, but I just want to 
to reassure you that regardless of your midterm mark, you still have the two assignments to go and you still have the final exam to go. So you can still do very well in the course. And typically, you know, if, if your midterm mark is anomalously low and completely out of character with all of your other marks, um, we can discuss this and see about potentially shifting weighting onto the exam, depending how your midterm mark um, is an indicator of your performance. So don't be discouraged. It is, uh, you know, it's a little bit disheartening, but it can happen. Um, and I believe that this particular course has so much information on such a variety of subjects, it's sometimes easy to become overwhelmed by everything that you have to study. Okay. So having said that, I'll just remind you that the exam will cover everything in the course. It's cumulative. So you may get questions on definitions from lectures 1 to 10, but I'm really going to concentrate on the material that we do after the midterm. So it's essentially lecture 11 onwards till the end of the course, but fair warning, you may get something like a majorly important concept like light, color, any of those definitions you could find on the final exam. For both, for the midterm and the exam, the, the midterm is 18%, right, currently, or? Oh. No, I don't have that percentage yet. I haven't made it up yet, but I'm not going to, it's, I'm not going to make it unfair and ask you a bunch of obscure questions from the first lecture. If I ask you questions from the first few lectures, it'll be on something that's relevant to the later lectures later on. So it'll really, it'll really mainly be 11 onwards. Okay, let me just double check. I always think I'm not, but let me just double check that I'm recording here. And yes, I am. So after that kind of interesting foray into uh, genetic engineering and uh, glowing animals, we're now going to talk about the natural colors that are found in animals and the pigments responsible for this sort of coloration. You can see in this some beautiful iridescent peacock feathers. Uh, with iridescence, iridescent, it kind of means shiny and almost mirror-like. So typically, iridescent colors will be blues, greens, purples, and they're very shiny to the eye and reflect a lot of light back towards you. So when I'm talking about iridescent, this is what I'm, what I'm meaning. It has sort of a metallic sheen to it. In terms of uh, seeing a variety of animals nearby, um, while typically the animals you see looking at the window or, or walking across campus would be like a squirrel, you're not going to see any of these. But colors in nature are quite diverse. And sometimes something that you may consider unnatural, almost neon colors in nature. And we'll see exactly why this arises. So if you were to go to the zoo, you could see a number of interesting specimens. Uh, 
pink flamingos notably have this orangey pink neon glow. And that actually comes from food that they eat. All of these animals here are at the zoo, and you can go see them at, or further uh, look at the details of the exhibits here. These arrow poison frogs have blue and yellow. You've got kind of the painter's complementary colors there in them, and black. But they're colored in such a way so that people, not people, animals that um, may be inclined to try and harm them, realize just from that combination of colors that they are poisonous. So it's a defense mechanism. An interesting bird called a Turaco kind of looks like a very mini peacock when you see the larger pictures of these Turacos. Uh, but they're a North African bird, and they have this incredible plumage, lots of greens, blues, very bright reds. And we'll talk about why they have some of these colors in their plumage. But they're also extremely unique, which is why I'm including them here, because typically in pigments, we think about a lot of natural substances, natural organic substances. The Chiracos actually are one of the only animals that incorporate uh, an inorganic substance as a pigment uh, giver. Basically, they incorporate copper into the pigment mechanism for um, this green, green color that you see in them. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So seeing all of these examples and seeing how vibrant some of these are, what is the point? What's the evolutionary or the scientific point for this, aside from looking pretty? Uh, typically, there's a number of different purposes. And as we talked about uh, marine biology and marine uh, biological animals uh, having the bioluminescence and develop the biofluorescence for evolutionary reasons, the same is true of colors in animals. So one of the, I mean, the most obvious probably number one reason would be um, to find a mate. Uh, a color of the specific animal often indicates the health or virility of the animal. And so this goes a long way toward mate selection. And it's kind of interesting, too, that it's, it's the opposite way around often than what we would think of in humans. Typically, in the animal kingdom, and especially in birds, the males have the more vibrant uh, display of colors. So if you've ever seen cardinals, um, a lot of the time the cardinals come in the spring and there's a really bright red one and the kind of brown-looking, muddy one. The brown is the female. The red is the male. And the males are sort of basically parading themselves with, the, with this beautiful red, vibrant color to attract females. But also, if you think about typical evolutionary roles, the female stays in the nest and guards the young while the male forages for food. And uh, it basically, the female wants to remain hidden. The female does not want to be a bright red beacon for predators to come to the nest and essentially kill her and kill the babies. So there's a lot of, of, of sense in terms of the males being the more attention-getting uh, sex of the species in terms of this. Another reason why animals have pigments is camouflage. 
certainly if you're in a surrounding, these two poison dart frogs here, they're both poisonous frogs, are not very camouflaged. And when I say camouflage, I mean blended into the surroundings so that you can't detect the difference between the animal and the surroundings. But they're not particularly camouflaged, again, for good reason. This is a defensive reason. It's to let potential predators know that they are poisonous. Stay away from me. Do not touch me. That's basically the, what colors indicate in this sense. So these are warning colors. And frogs, you see this quite a lot in poisonous frogs. Uh, you also see it in skunks. And skunks have the kind of the white coloration. And that white coloration becomes more apparent. Often the skunk will have its tail up. When it's trying to warn you, it's about to spray you. Uh, and that white coloration is very, very prominent. That is a warning mechanism. This is actually, this particular uh, warning mechanism is called aposmatism. So it's basically a warning color to let other species or other predators know to stay away. So in terms of pigments in animals, where do these come from? Well, there's a large number of pigments. You already know that from doing, working on your dye essays. Uh, there's the number of pigments we use in dyes, in paints, in a wide variety of industries. And the same is true of the animal kingdom. However, there's only one really common pigment that animals are capable of actually producing. And this pigment is melanin. It's one of the most common pigment in pigments in living organisms. If it sounds familiar to you, uh, that's good. It probably should. Uh, you probably get inundated with um, cosmetics ads on TV about melanin, melanin spot removing, melanin, etc. Because melanin in human pigment gives you discolorations on the skin. But again, for very good reason, the melanin is a survival mechanism and a protection mechanism against UV radiation. So if you stay out in the sun, and you're worried about sun damage in your skin, you know, people who stay out in the sun longer have sort of more freckles or melanin spots, but that's because the melanin has arisen, the production of the melanin has happened in an effort to protect the organism from harmful UV radiation. So these are melanins. So melanins are pigments. They provide these black, and brown colors. Those are called eumelanins. Um, there's also reddish pigments, which is thiomelanins. And uh, they're in plants, animals, and also some single-celled organisms. And here's an example of what a melanin looked like, looks, sort of melanin discoloration looks like on the human skin. But as you can see, what you have inside the epidermis, inside your skin, is, are these cells called melanocytes. The melanocytes produce the melanin when you have incoming UV radiation. The longer you stay out, the more exposed you are. The melanocytes become more active, think you need protection, and melanin is produced and appears on your skin as these darker spots. It's also not just your skin. 
Melanin is, is responsible for a large portion of your coloration, as it is for most animals' colorations. Your hair, your fingernails, even some parts of your iris are all colored by melanin. So in humans, we know that this is also a defense response. It works similarly in other animals. But let's take a look at all of these sort of different types of melanins that are most common. Before we do that, uh, the melanin is produced, again, in these sort of cells called melanocytes. Later on today, we're going to talk about uh, cells called chromatophores, which are in sort of the co more cold-blooded animals in some fish and reptiles. They produce the pigment. Melanin in warm-blooded animals produces most of the pigment, and that's done in the melanocytes. Okay, so typically, people would say, oh, if you have, you know, slightly different shade of skin color or darker skin, you must have more melanocytes. That actually isn't true. The color, the pigment of your skin doesn't have to do with the number of melanocytes you have. It has to do with the production of the melanin itself, which can be stimulated in a number of ways, including being outside in the sun. So melanins, there are three naturally occurring ones. As I mentioned before, the most common one in humans, which is the black-brown pigment, is eumelanin. Um, thiomelanin is red or yellow. That's responsible for red hair or for, for freckles. Often you see natural redheads with very pale complexions and freckles. Uh, and obviously the red hair, that's due to thiomelanin. Another interesting one, and this one we don't really even understand it very well yet. Um, there's a lot of neurobiological research going into understanding neuromelanins and their purpose as well. So it's kind of obscure what the function exactly of this type of melanin is, but research so far has linked it to sort of a vulnerability in the brain, if a lot of neuromelanin is produced in the brain, this can be linked to the cause of a lot of neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's disease. So we don't, we don't fully understand it yet, but what's happening is when you're looking at your brain and there are neurons, there's certainly dark, darker colored neurons. And the process and having these sort of neuromelanins in there predisposes them to produce more of this melanin, neuromelanin, which tends to be linked to, to degenerative neurological conditions, which is kind of interesting. So these two then, what about eumelanin? Eumelanin, if you think about coloration in animals, eumelanin in both animals and human beings, often it is among the sort of albino population of the species that you find no eumelanin. So an, what an albino is, uh, typically albinism, it means a lack of pigment. Let's take a look. So eumelanin is the thing that really gives us most of our hair color, skin color, 
and pigmentation whatsoever. So when you don't have that, both in humans and animals, you get uh, albinism or albino uh, animals. And albino just means, again, lack of pigment. But you can see this is a, is a hedgehog. And he has a lack of eumelanins. So his quills, which would normally be a very dark brown or black color to camouflage him when he's digging in the dirt or, or sort of moving around in the ground, are completely white. And his eyes are also red. And again, this is also eumelanin deficit. I think this is an uh, albino alligator. I say I think because it could be a crocodile, but I believe it's an alligator. And then there is this uh, incredible looking white albino peacock. So the iridescence, the blue, the green, the uh, goldy purple feathers of the peacock in an albino, you do not get such colorations, but you get this pure white bridal looking peacock. So it's, it's, it's really interesting to see these things in nature. And again, with human beings, you also get the same thing. You've probably seen human beings that lack pigmentation, and so their hair is very kind of white, their skin is white, and sometimes, in some cases, eyes will be red. It's actually, al albinism is a congenital disorder, uh, and it's just a lack of pigment, and this is the lack of eumelanin in humans. So let's talk about production then. We've talked about a lack of the pigment. How, does, how do we actually produce the pigment? As I mentioned, melanin is the only pigment that animals can produce themselves, meaning that the rest of the pigments that they are endowed with comes from the food that they eat. Now, obviously you can tell that this is probably not the case with human beings. You don't eat a carrot and suddenly become orange. <laughs> but, uh, you know, typically animals have evolved along this particular line. And specifically an example of that are the flamingos that you saw earlier. Flamingos are actually born white or kind of grayish. And then because of the algae and the shrimp that they eat, they develop this, this orangey pink color. So diet is a really key factor in the coloration of all of the animals you see around them. Chances are if an animal has a spectacular neon coat, it's probably something it's eating that gives it that color. And if you remember, there is a pigment that we discussed at one point when we talked about paints and dyes, and that was called uh, Indian yellow. It stopped being produced in the 1800s, but Indian yellow was supposedly created by feeding cows mango leaves, and it was from their urine. So you can see that it was a very vibrant yellow, but it was clearly understood uh, in earlier times that animal products would be largely colored by what they eat. So with the birds, we have pigment being deposited largely in the feathers of the bird. Um, and Sometimes these pigments, once they're deposited in the feathers, are metabolically altered, meaning that the bird's uh, system, basically um, metabolic system, which has to do with eating and, and um, will basically give the change to the pigments that they've already got deposited in them. 
And a classic example is the pink flamingos. This is called, um, I think it's called Flamingo Beach in Aruba. And they're typically well-known Caribbean flamingos. They've got these gorgeous orange, neon-y pink color. And that comes, again, from the beta carotene. We talked a lot about carotenoids. Flaming flamingos get a huge amount of this, especially if they're very, sort of, very, very highly pigmented. And it comes from shrimp and blue-green algae. And again, that color comes from the carotenoids in the shrimp and in the algae. An example of sort of, you can see a wide range. This is kind of like orangey. This is a very dark fuchsia. And these ones, in contrast, are very kind of white or almost pastel orange. And again, this is directly related to diet. These flamingos at the bottom are held in captivity and are not actually eating the same kind of shrimp that flamingos in the wild are being fed or finding. Typically, at the top, uh, I mentioned that flamingos are born gray. And here is a sort of a baby here, which you can see with this kind of mottled whitish grayish color. And as they feed and eat the shrimp and the algae, they develop this orangey-pink coloration. Um, the pinkness, in terms of like scientific function, the pinkness is very desirable. It helps them find a mate. So more pink, more vibrant, more neon signals uh, better health, which would indicate better choice as a mate. And then again, as I've said, these ones are in captivity. They look very pale a lot of the time, especially in some of those um, sort of animal, there's bush gardens in Florida. Uh, they look very washed out. And that's because of the diet that they're being fed in, in captivity. Okay, so here, here are the two racos, which I said looked like little peacocks. They kind of look like little peacocks. Well, that one does at least. But this is the unique bird that incorporates copper into its pigment. So the copper is reflected in the green of the plumage of this pigment. They're a group of birds basically from mainland Africa. And uh, they have this copper as part of their pigment in the form of two substances, which I'll discuss in a moment. Um, these are turicin and turacoverdin. We haven't specifically talked about those before, but those are the two types of pigments that incorporate this inorganic copper green into the feathers of these birds. Uh, the red comes from the chiracin, whereas the green comes more from the chiracoverdin. And the blue as well comes from this chiracoverdin, which is copper compound containing. One of the kind of interesting things is, as well, that this pigment, obviously you can think of using it for camouflage. Um, and typically, this happens as a function of environment itself. Basically, the chiracin and chiracoverdin, there's more chiracoverdin in the greener environment the bird is in. So this one is very, very green. You can see, see it sitting in a green tree, but they kind of adapt to the environment. The greener the environment, the greener the bird, typically. So that 
blue that we saw, the turaco blue in the turaco. Sometimes you'll see turaco spelled T-U-R, turaco, it's the same thing. Um, remember a long time ago when we talked first about blue morpho butterflies and blue as a color in nature. We said blue is rarely found in nature. It's such a beautiful color, but it rarely is there. You don't see blue flowers, and you rarely see blue furry animals. Um, but blue is produced in nature not as a pigment, usually as a structural pigment. So basically it is something that's happening with the reflection and refraction of light at the microscopic level. So amongst birds, any bird you see, so turacos, blue jays, a lot of those kind of iridescent blue birds, what's happening is they're unusual because these feathers are structurally different at the microscopic level. It's not a pigment that's causing the blue, it's a microscopic structure. And this, anytime you have structural color in a bird or feathers, this is a schemochrome. So a schemochrome just means that it's the structure of whatever the color is contained in, like in the blue mofor butterfly, the blue wings. They had very minute, clear little bone structures at the microscopic level that were causing refraction and reflection of mainly blue light to your eyes. So this is not a physical chemical pigment. Here's some more blue feathers. Um, typically, we've talked that, that these are a microscopic effect. What's happening is the structure at very, very small levels is stimulating preferential absorption of the wavelengths other than blue, and you have the reflection coming to your eyes as blue. There's something called preferential scattering which we will talk about later when we talk about scattering and we talk about rainbows. And what happens to light when it hits sunlight, let's say, when it hits different particles in the atmosphere. It gets scattered in different ways. The same thing happens when you have light hitting the feather of a bird. There's some preferential scattering and the blue is scattered to you so that you can see it better. There's also other mechanisms, but things like uh, melanins. Melanins don't produce the blue, but they can enhance the blue. They're also kind of interesting as a color of feathers because blue feathers also can extend the pigment, the idea of the color can extend into basically the UV range which has some interesting implications. So you s you're seeing a blue pigment, and chances are the light that's being reflected by this blue pigment extends into the non-visible UV range. This is interesting because it may have no bearing whatsoever for you. You can't see the UV light. But other birds are tetrachromat. So instead of us, we are trichromats. We have the red, green, and blue cones. Birds are tetrachromats, so they have four different types of cones. And they may be able to see better or see a small perception of UV light. And therefore, their feathers may have a brighter, more 
wide array of colors to other birds. That brings us to the question of uh, dinosaurs. It's kind of, you know, it sounds like a big leap. How are you getting from birds to dinosaurs? Well, actually, a lot of paleontological research um, in the past 30, 30, 20, 30 years has suggested that dinosaurs were a lot more like birds than they were like lizards. And um, if you're familiar with the Jurassic Park movies, the Jurassic Park novel, this was kind of like a basic tenet of one of the paleontologists in this novel, that they're much more bird-like than they are lizard-like. So if that's true, were dinosaurs feathered? What did they look like? What colors were they? Uh, and we see, indeed, now that we have found a bunch of different evidence, dinosaurs had a kind of a fuzz or feathers. There were winged dinosaurs, like Archaeopteryx, that flew um, and were pretty much modern-day uh, ancestors of our modern-day birds, which had bright arrays of colors. But the regular dinosaurs, the lizard-like dinosaurs, the raptors in uh, Jurassic Park, for instance, did they have feathers? Well, they may have had this sort of a dino fuzz. How do we know that? Well, we know it because of fossil remains. And in the fossilized remains of fossilized feathers, we found traces of melanins. We haven't found enough to know what the color produced was, but given how we found them and where we found them, we can make an educated guess based on the color systems we see in birds. So it's likely that your idea of colorations about dinosaurs being brown and green and yellow and really kind of muddy are probably all wrong. Uh, they could have been brightly colored like a lot of birds that we see today. So here again is the, uh, an evolution of the dinosaurs to the flying dinosaur. Um, dinosaurs did fly. They did have feathered dinosaurs that were like birds. So I think this is probably, this one here is like a raptor in Jurassic Park. But there's evidence of, even in these sort of larger dinosaurs, you didn't have necessarily uh, big feathers, but you would have had this fuzz. What color there would have been, we don't really know. We can only make educated guesses, as I said, based on how birds today have evolutionarily evolved color schemes. Um, but basically, the feathers as well, with dinosaurs as in other animals, may have been used for a variety of purposes. One could be mating, to potentially attract a mate, and one could be camouflage. This is a fossil of a fossilized um, feather, dinosaur feather. You can see uh, the detail. This is using a scanning electron microscope going down into very fine microscopic layers of detail. Again, melanins were found, but it is not known really, not in enough quantity to know what kind of colors or how the colors were distributed throughout the feather, just that there were feathers, there were melanins. So if we had dinosaurs with feathers, did we have those kind of peacock, beautiful dinosaurs? Do we have iridescent dinosaurs? Well, quite possibly, yes. 
quite possibly we did. Um, from the structures of the feathers, from what we can infer from the existence of color in bird feathers, they may have been, some dinosaur feathers or dinosaur fuzz may have been iridescent. And this brings us black to this idea of blue. Blue is so uncommon in nature as a color. We don't have blue cats and blue dogs and blue roses, although you can color your rose blue. Do we have blue dinosaurs? Probably not quite in the same way, but if we did, again, that blue seen in the color of the dinosaur would be a structural feature of the microscopic layer of whatever skin or feather that the blue was contained on. One other interesting thing, so this shows you, this is a, um, actually, a, uh, I believe it's a sparrow. And this just shows you some structural coloration of iridescent blue in, in modern birds. So you can see that going down into the scanning electron microscope level, you see these very geometric structures. And it's the gradations in the geometric structures which give you your blue color reflected to your eye. So with the iridescent dinosaurs, if there were iridescent dinosaurs, what does this tell us? Well, we know birds are tetrachromats. If dinosaurs did indeed have UV sort of sensitive, photosensitive cells, perhaps dinosaurs were tetrachromats as well and perhaps they could see some part into the UV and this had some role in whatever color display they would see on other dinosaurs. Um, let's take a quick look at this video which shows you some possible colorations of uh, given this new discovery. Relatively new. What color were dinosaurs and when did animals start being different colors at all? I'm Anthony Carboni, this is D News, and color is a crazy useful tool for animal survival. Some are colored to blend in with their environments. Some venomous animals, like snakes, use bright colors for the opposite reasons, to specifically say, here I am, do not screw with me, which is called uh, aposmatism, which is Latin for, I think, badass. Colors can mean anything from, yo, I am ready to mate, to, hey man, I am a different species than you, please do not hurt me. But when did all of that start? Most animal coloring comes from melanosomes, which are these organelles inside of cells that make melanin that gives color and also protects from the sun. According to a study published in Nature, scientists have been able to recover some melanosomes from the fossils of dinosaur feathers, and they found similarities to living animals that allowed them to make some inferences, which is fancy talk for, man, I have no idea what millions of years of fossilization did to these melanosomes, but here are some thoughts. And those thoughts are, Anchiornis was black, white, and gray with a red crest on its head. Cinceropteryx seemed to be orange with a striped tail, and it looks like Archaeopteryx was all black. So how'd that red and orange get there? When did these animals start us on the road to the multicolored insanity that we have in nature today? Well, it seems like genetic mutations started color changes in a very small way. And then something happened in the late Jurassic period, specifically with a type of dinosaur called Manoraptors. All of a sudden, 140-something million years ago, all kinds 
dozens of different melanosome shapes started appearing. All flying dinosaurs belong to the Manoraptor group. Uh, researchers say that sometime, right before the origin of flight, when dinosaur feathers changed from these tiny little fuzzy things to the feather shapes that we recognize now, there was this huge explosion in color variation. And that's leading researchers to believe that melanosome diversity is linked to big physical changes in an animal. Feather shape and metabolism changes to let a dinosaur fly, and it's color changes along with it. Now that could mean color isn't just linked to an animal's environment or behavior, it could be linked to what it is physically made to do. And since melanosomes similar to dinosaurs can be found in living animals, we might be able to compare them and use them to find out new information about the physical makeup of dinosaurs. All this stuff is speculative right now, but it is crazy interesting to think about. Color linked to function, little color-coded animals like video game enemies. It's not like video game enemies, don't quote me as saying that. Hey, by the way, if you like what we are doing here on D News, I've got another science channel where I do big experiments out in the world with my friend Tara. It's called Hard Science. It's at YouTube. Okay. So, there you have dinosaur colors and, and uh, feathers in a very enthusiastic way. Um, just one of them that's kind of interesting is the one that he mentioned, the Archaeopteryx one, which is like the dinosaur bird. Typically, if you were a dinosaur enthusiast as a kid, you would have seen these beautiful illustrations of Archaeopteryx spreading its feathers with rainbow colors all over the place. And now it turns out that it's probably all black. It's kind of, it just, it just makes you pause and, and reconsider everything that you would have imagined or thought you knew. So it, I always like things like that because it's good to think in different ways. Okay, so the vision, uh, one thing I was saying before we saw the video was the iridescence, that if uh, the iridescence, the potential iridescence of dinosaur feathers is true, then this has some significance in the fact of dinosaur vision or implications for dinosaur vision, that perhaps dinosaurs were tetrachromats. So if you are more interested in this, I'm not going to show this video now. Um, this is uh, an interesting video with a paleontologist, um, again, and this is the scientific consultant on Jurassic Park, and he's talking about um, what colors he actually wanted to make the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, and he wanted to make them very bright and kind of neonish and bird-like, but they didn't think that that would be a very good selling point. They wouldn't be terribly scary, so they decided not to go with the more realistic colors. Okay. And, and there you can read a, a number of articles here on this particular uh, subject. So let's move on to camouflage then. Camouflage is a very important use of color, and it's a very obvious use of color, which is to use your color to hide yourself in the wild from potential predators or attackers. Um, there are different, many different ways to go about camouflage. Let's look at a couple ones quickly. So one way to camouflage yourself is to look like your surroundings. That is our typical camouflage, camo pants, camo uniforms for military personnel. Another way is to sort of mimic light, light dark contrasts of areas that you frequent. So zebras, for us, are typically in our minds. You would think of a zebra as really, really standing out. 
the most ridiculous kind of camouflage possible because they are such an eyesore, they're so visible. How could that be camouflage? Well, in fact, um, it is a camouflage, but for a camouflage for their type of predators, which tend to be lions in the wild, and lions are actually colorblind. And typically, they'll be roaming sort of on savannas, and the zebras will be grazing in grass. And if you think of blades of grass, under different illumination conditions, you would just get these almost interference fringes. It would look like stripes of black and white, black and white. And so this is essentially what we think zebra coloration is mimicking, the grasses that they are mired in so that lions who are colorblind when they come along will hopefully think that the zebra blends into this light dark grass contrast. It also does uh, another important thing. These white, black, sort of stereoscopic patterns are dizzying to look at. And a lot of the time, if you've looked at those squares or circles, your eyes start to, to throb and you may get a headache. But this is used in zebras to also deter another predator, which isn't the type of big, mean, fierce predator that you would think of like a lion, but it's a fly. It's a fly called the tsetse fly, which is like a vampire fly. It, it uh, sort of attaches onto the zebra and sucks its blood. So typically, this kind of display of color is a deterrent, and it confuses and disorients the tsetse fly, so hopefully it won't have a chance to latch onto the zebra and deplete it of blood. Uh, there are also some theories that these stripes in zebras have to do with the fat patterning underneath the stripes themselves, and as such, are a heat regulation mechanism. So this is, this is something that is, is a theory. We're still examining this type of uh, a theory. And another one, of course, is since such an obvious use of color is to attract a mate, does the striping pattern serve some sort of courtship process? Well, potentially. We, we don't know yet. Uh, some more striped predators. So specifically, the zebra's uh, nightmare predator is a lion. Um, a tiger, also typically with tiger stripes, allows them to be sort of camouflaged in the jungle in sort of dense green areas. Although it doesn't make a lot of sense to you when you think about that, you'd think that stripes make them stand out. But again, it's the similar kind of thing with the lion. For the kind of animals or predators that they are looking to be hidden from, these stripes provide a good blending into the background foliage, depending on the color vision system of those particular predators. There's also one fascinating property of colors. So we talked about leaves. We talked about anthocyanins, and we talked about chlorophyll, and the chlorophyll production declining when the light levels change, and then the anthocyanins taking over and showing you a more red leaf when fall comes. Well, what about animals? Well, I mean, we certainly don't change color in seasons, but animals do, and especially animals that are in the latitudes of Earth where they're very sensitive to different light changes. So for instance, in the Arctic, uh, a lot of Arctic animals go through this seasonal color change. 
it has to do with the fact that think of the Arctic specifically. In the Arctic tundra, you have sort of lichens and you have mosses, and it would be a browny kind of a color during the summer and a very, very white, light color in the winter when it's coated with snow. In order to adapt to that kind of environment, the animals sort of change color accordingly. So here's an example. These are examples of whoops, an Arctic hawk and an Arctic fox. On the left, you see the spring, summer, and on the right, you see the winter. So these animals actually, as soon as the light production starts to dip, there's kind of a chemical reaction, a photoreaction in the pigment producing um, molecules. And what happens is some of the fur drops off and new fur is grown with a different color for the appropriate season. So hare, foxes, owls, and a bird called a ptarmigan, an Arctic ptarmigan, they all display these color changes with the seasons. Show you a picture of a ptarmigan. That's a ptarmigan, kind of looks like a little partridge or something, but a ptarmigan in the summer. And that's the ptarmigan in the winter. And look at the difference in the background environments. In the summer, you have some green grasses and brown. The ptarmigan's brown. In the winter, everything is completely coated with snow and the, the ptarmigan adapts accordingly. So the last thing we're going to talk about today is uh, something called chromatophores. Chromatophores are those things that are responsible for color in things that I had talked about, cold-blooded animals. So in the case of fish, reptiles, cephalods, amphibians, and crustaceans, so those are snails, basically, their color is variable and comes also from these chromatophores. What a chromatophore is, um, is basically the pigment, the, the sort of area, pigment producing area of cell. Recall that we said melanins, animals really just produce that pigment. Well, in different kinds of animals, in different cold-blooded animals, such as these above, it's the chromatophore part of the cell that produces the pigment. And this gives us color. So if you notice the commonality between all of, these, all of these types of organisms in here, a lot of them can actually change color. Think of an octopus. Think of a squid. Octopi are actually some of the most complex organisms. If you've ever seen, there was a video that went viral, I believe, and it was an octopus changing color to match its surroundings. And at one point, it actually changed color to match kind of like a black and white grid in its surroundings. So this happens because of the different chromatophores and the properties of the chromatophores, and also, in some cases, the muscles in which the chromatophores are contained. So let's see an example of that. So there are a number of chromatophore types. Remember, this is just for those sort of cold-blooded animals. This is a kind of close-up microscopic illustration of chromatophores. And again, I'm not going to expect you to memorize this list, but just to show you an idea of all of the different types of colors that are, that are uh, given by chromatophores. 
here's a, a spectrum. There are the same kind of iridescent effects, but those come from something called iridophores. Let's look at that chromatophore with the muscle surrounding it. So this is a cuttlefish. And on the left, you see the cuttlefish sort of isolated. And here, the cuttlefish is completely, almost very, very nicely camouflaging into its environment. What allows this cuttlefish to do this are successive layers of chromatophores. It's like brown, red, orange, yellow, and then, not only do you have these successive layers, but you have muscles around that expand and contract and allow the chromatophores to adopt different shapes. So it actually changes its shape. So here's this kind of epidermis skin, that is, uh, yellow, red, and brown chromatophores. And this is when, basically, that chromatophore-containing muscle is smooshed up or contracted and this is when the muscle is expanded. So it, it gives it a whole new dimension to its color changing abilities. Uh, and here is a better illustration, a molecular illustration, without needing to get too overly technical. You get the idea, there's a chromophore in the center of this sort of muscle bundle. The muscle bundle can expand and contract, assuming different shapes, which also adds different depth layers to how the chromophore reflects and refracts light, giving it a number of different colors. And these are just an example of all these different kind of col color camouflages that a cuttlefish is capable of assuming. So those are cuttlefish. Their eyes, you know, kind of interestingly, these are such color changing uh, organisms, but their eyes aren't actually sensitive to color. Um, they're actually sensitive to something called the polarization of light. And you can think of polarization of light as being sort of like the orientation of light. Polarization is something we're going to touch on in future lectures because it's very important when we're going to talk about thin films, iridescent effects in soap bubbles and such things with color effects. But for now, I don't want to go into this too much because it's been a long day already. Uh, but polarization, think of it as the orientation of the light. Remember, light is a wave consisting of electric and magnetic oscillating components. So when you have light moving in a certain direction, so let's say the light is moving this way, you have an electric and a magnetic field encircling it that's oscillating. And what's happening with this oscillation, it goes in all different directions. So you can have right light that's left hand circularly polarized, rotating like this. You can have light that's right hand circularly polarized, rotating like this. You have a number of different orientations of a light wave in space. But you can filter those. And optics and diffraction grading allows you to filter and isolate one polarization or one direction of light. And actually, your sunglasses uh, often do that. That's when you see UV polarized on the little label. And, and probably uh, you'll, you'll have noticed that some of the glasses, sunglasses that you get, the polarized glasses, give you a nice display of rainbow colors 
because they're separating the light out into the different wavelengths. Um, but in any case, we'll talk about polarization later. This is also really important for technologies like lasers. Anyway, in terms of what we were talking about with cuttlefish, though, they are sensitive to not the visibility of the light, but the polarization or the innate direction and orientation of the light wave itself. Another use of color that's really interesting um, with cephalopods, so things like an octopus and many different types of squid, are this kind of defensive ink that they excrete. Um, so this is a picture of an octopus foiling a diver, it looks like, with a cloud of very opaque, dark uh, ink. So cuttlefish, octopi, and squid are cephalopods, and the cephalopods can change color. So like the like cuttlefish, they have complex ways of changing color. The octopus actually uh, shows some of the most complex color changing capability. But they have another defense along with their color changing and their hiding abilities. They have this ink, which is this dense sort of viscous dark ink that comes out of ink sacs near their gills. Uh, the main colorant in that ink, though, is this sort of like blackish pigment, is melanin. So that brings us sort of full circle to where we started with melanin. And here's an octopus sort of squirting an ink cloud. And they can use the ink as a distraction in a couple of, of different ways. Um, they can basically use it to escape predators by expelling a very large amount in a cloud and then they sort of swim off somewhere else. Or they can, um, sorry, this is the second one. Basically, they, they, they can have two ways. They will foil the predator, uh, producing a cloud that hides them, or they will have these big clouds that look like their own size and they make a distraction so it seems like potentially another, a doppelganger of the octopus is there. Another version of the octopus is there. It's a roughly the same size and shape. Predator gets confused, goes after the decoy, octopus swims away. So it's uh, very clever. Um, one last thing on the ink is the, the cephalopod, this, this ink in their ink sacs. Uh, these had been used a lot to develop um, inks. Uh, there's a fa very famous uh, sepia ink, which is often you'll see in your, in sort of like photo editing software, you'll see like a sepia or some people say sepia filter. And that's that kind of yellowy tinge to the photos. And you'll see it in a lot of sort of older um, artworks. But this is basically ink that comes from the ink sacs of cephalopods. And actually, it's kind of maybe a little bit disturbing, but it's still used today as a food colorant. So next time you have a very dark, strange-looking thing, you can think about an octopus. No, you shouldn't, shouldn't do that. Probably really make you sick. But, <laughs> so that's, that's the, um, the uh, cephalopod ink. Now, with respect to chameleons, we all know about chameleons. They also change color. They are not cold-blooded. They are... Um, basically have the same kind 
of ability of changing color, but this comes from more of a thermal and more of an emotional thing. So chameleons don't change color so much as a defense mechanism. They tend to change color more as an, a sort of an emotional reaction. And you can think of that as, you know, startled, frightened. It has to do with probably how their nervous systems work and also with a lot of thermal gradients in the system, temperature changes. And if you want to remember that they, they have to change color based on mood, think of mood rings. Mood ring you put on your finger has a chemical in it that is sensitive to thermal changes. And so, you know, if you're, if you're a lot hotter, it probably will turn red and say you're very angry. But it's the same kind of thing with chameleon color. Uh, they have, again, multiple layers of chromatophores interspersed throughout the skin. This is actually, I believe, this is not in English, so do not worry about the labels. But I'm just trying to show you there that there are many different uh, chromatophore layers in cells. And when they move these, these, they can move around the pigments between the cells and create a variety of color effects and illusions. One last thing with the chameleon is they also use something interesting. They use for this depth of light and refraction and reflection, they use guanine crystals. If that word looks familiar to you, guanine, guanine is a component of DNA. Um, but basically they use crystals underneath, just under the skin to help them with their color changing abilities. And there are some additional references uh, if you found the, the animal coloration lecture interesting. So please go ahead and, and explore those. And I think that is about it for today. And I will see you on Friday.